Well, one of the cool things that we got to see this week, there, there's so many different things that, uh, that are a part of this building and things that we did to this building that we just thought, you, you know, were cool for a lot of different reasons. But, but one of the really cool things that I think it was Mark's idea was we had these giant stones uh, delivered that are put in our planters here on the south side of the building. If you came in that way, you might have seen them. Here's one of them being delivered right here, uh, sliding off the skid steer. If you see the next picture, um, they, they, they're sitting there so that you can talk and hang out and take pictures on that wall. We're planning to do, put a mirror on that wall in the future. But the, the company that delivered these said these were some of the heaviest stones they've ever delivered. Those stones are about 4,000 pounds each. In fact, they needed, Mark told me, they needed like new loaders. They needed new trucks and loaders just for these rocks and then they still couldn't handle it they kept the, the skid steers and the, they kept falling over as they were carrying these 4000 pound stones like falling over and tipping the loaders forward when the first one slid off the skid steer it was inches from pinning one of the guys that was working against the wall and they said if it had he probably would have lost his leg mark said uh, when the stone like hit the ground off of the skid steer. It like shook the ground almost like an earthquake. He said it was crazy. And so I asked him again, I said, 4,000 pounds, are you sure? And he was like, yep, I'm, I'm sure. And so I went outside and I went up to the stone and I dug my feet in <laughs> and I tried to move. I tried to rock it. I was like, surely I could, it doesn't look 4,000 pounds. Surely I could just tip this stone, you know, up on its edge. No, it didn't move. And so listen, here's the deal. If you can go outside and move one of those stones or pick it up or just even push it enough to like lift one side up off the ground, it's going to be like the sword and the stone. You get the keys to the building. Okay. <laughs> those stones, they are huge. And Here's what's interesting. In, in, in seeing them delivered this week, and Mark was sending me the pictures, I was like, oh my gosh, this is an incredible picture and illustration of what we're talking about today in the Gospel of Luke. Because watch this. Jesus is going to say, just like we sang a second ago, Jesus is going to say that he is a stone that is so monumental, that he is a stone, a cornerstone that is so consequential that he cannot be moved, that he cannot be toyed with, and that to reject him or to trip over him will mean being crushed by him. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We are in a verse by verse study of the gospel of Luke. And we've been challenging you to not just study the gospel of Luke in here with us, but to study the gospel of Luke, like engage with us as a family, as our church is diving into the gospel of Luke. So, so not just in here, but we've been studying the gospel of Luke in our small groups, We've been studying the Gospel of Luke Monday through Friday through our daily devotionals under the Bible study tab on our app, and we'll do that same thing this next week. We've been challenging you as families to study the Gospel of Luke together using the Table Talk, which is a Bible study resource 
under the Bible study tab on our app because our kids right now, our students, are going to study these exact same verses today. So we're all learning the same thing. And with the family talk, it's a great resource to then discuss the scripture together as a family around a table. And you guys, most of you know this, but we preach verse by verse through the books of the Bible, right now the Gospel of Luke, because we just believe that that style, that method of preaching and then studying the Scripture will be more effective at producing healthier, deeper, more effective, more faithful, more steadfast, more generous disciples of Jesus, that our marriages will be richer as a result, and that our kids will know what they believe and why they believe it. And I, I've shared with you several times over the course of the last year that we believe that our vision here at this church is about being a remnant people of God. And, and if you remember, a remnant is a people who trust God, believe God, follow Jesus, and submit to his word regardless of what the rest of the culture is doing. And so the rest of the culture can thumb their nose up at God and rebel against God and his word. The remnant says, regardless of what the culture is doing, we, as for me and my house, as for me and my church, we're going to know God, worship God, serve God, love his word, and submit ourselves to his word. That's what the remnant people of God do in any culture, in any society. And in order to be a remnant people, we've got to know the word of God backwards and forwards. And so we study the scripture verse by verse that we might be those remnant disciples of Jesus. And our hope, specifically in the gospel of Luke, is that we get to know Jesus, right? Right? Not the left's version of Jesus, not the right's version of Jesus. No, we want the full counsel of Jesus. We want to get to know Jesus because as Paul said in Philippians 3, knowing Christ, there's nothing better. Paul said there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. I compare every, everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. And so that's our prayer as we've been studying the gospel of Luke, specifically this book, verse by verse, is that we get to know Jesus and find him surpassingly greater than anything this world has to offer. If you've been here, you know in the last weeks, we, we've started Passion Week, we've started Holy Week, and so we looked at Palm Sunday, we said maybe a better term for that Sunday was Donkey Sunday, and if you're here, you know what I'm talking about, right? So we, we, we did Palm Sunday, uh, Pastor Matt spoke on Holy or Holy Monday today, and for the next two weeks, we're looking at Holy Tuesday, Holy Tuesday for about three weeks because a lot happens on Tuesday, all right? And I know I go a long time. You don't want to be here for three, works, three weeks worth of messages, okay? I promise you. So we're breaking Tuesday into three weeks. So today and for the next two weeks, we're looking at Holy Tuesday. Now remember... Right now, this week that we're studying is also Passover week. It's Passover week for Israel. And so right now, scholars will tell us that there is about 2 million Jews that have pilgrimed to Jerusalem in this region right now in Luke chapter 20, and they are celebrating and remembering in Passover the blood of the lamb that rescued Israel from slavery to Egypt. And so that's where we find ourselves. Luke chapter 20, follow along with me. The verses will be on the screen, but they're also on our app 
along with the rest of the notes for today's message. If you go to our app, the City Church Lubbock, you can download it in your app store. The verses and the points are there. You can even fill in the blank with us as we go. But let's dive in. Luke chapter 20, starting in verse one, it says this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law and the elders came up to him and they demanded, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? Let me ask you a question first, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Well, they talked it over amongst themselves. And and here's what they said. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask us, why didn't we believe John? Verse six, but if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. And so they finally replied that they didn't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I am doing these things. If you were here when Pastor Matt was preaching on Holy Monday, you know that Jesus has gone to the temple, he's cleansed the temple, he's turned the tables over, right? And here we now find him beginning to preach the good news of the kingdom. Jesus is using his authority, and we're gonna dive into that more in here in just a second, but to go in and cleanse the temple and now preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus has reclaimed the temple for its legitimate use now as a center of God's word that is concerned with the redeeming purposes of God. This was always what the temple was to be for the nation of Israel, but they had turned it into, you remember Jesus saying it was a den of thieves, right? They were taking advantage of people and they weren't using the temple the way that God had ordained for them to use it. And so Jesus shows up, he gets rid of the money changers, he turns over the table, he's cleansing it out, right? And now he's beginning to reestablish what the temple was to be about, the preaching of God's word concerning the redeeming purposes of God. And so in proclaiming the good news about God's redemption, Jesus is in the process here of restoring the temple to its place of revelation and justice. The revelation of God's word and justice for the poor and the marginalized. This was the purpose of the temple and Jesus is now reclaiming it. And the Pharisees, these spiritual leaders are going to ask Jesus, what, what gives you the right to come into here, right? right? What, what gives you the right to get rid of us and start preaching this message. What is giving you the right? And they say this, by by what authority are you doing these things? Here's what they're asking. What justification do you have to wield this kind of authority and start telling us what we are doing is wrong and what we should be doing? You follow me? What authority, Jesus, do you have to come into here and wreck our lives and tell us that what we're doing is wrong and what you're saying is right. What gives you the, have you heard this question before? It's like reading our mail, right? In 2023, Jesus, what gives you the right to tell me I'm wrong and that you're right by, by, By what authority? 
What gives you the right to come in here and wreck everything and, and change everything and correct everything and tell us we're wrong? Like, what gives you the right to turn over, if you were here last week, what gives you the right to turn over the tables in my heart, in my life? By what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things? And Jesus counters their question with a question. And he says, hey, what about, I'll, 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 I'll answer you, but, but here's how we're going to play this game. By what authority did John come and baptize? So Jesus' counter question about John the Baptist, watch this, narrows the choices. By what authority? He narrows the choices down to there's only two forms of authority. Human authority or divine authority? The wisdom of man or the wisdom of God? He says, hey, what about John? His baptism. Was it human or was it divine? In other words, Jesus is saying there's only two kinds of authority in this world. Man's authority and God's authority. Authority from heaven versus authority from men. Now, John's role, John the Baptist's role, was largely to, as the prophets would say, to prepare the way for Jesus. So, if they were, if the Pharisees, here's the trap that Jesus has laid. It's perfect. Because he tells it, hey, John's authority, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it from men? If they allow that John's message and his baptism originated with God, that John spoke with authority from heaven, if they acknowledge that, then this would be admitting that Jesus' ministry was itself sanctioned by God. Because what did John say? I'm not him. I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. Don't look at me, John would say. There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what John said about Jesus. What John said about Jesus when he baptized Jesus and he heard the Father speak from heaven, that voice that said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. John the Baptist heard that. He baptizes Jesus, but before he does it, he says, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Because John the Baptist knew that's the Lord's anointed. That's the Messiah. He's the son of man. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. And so for Jesus to ask, it, it, it's so perfect. Because by acknowledging that John the Baptist's authority, that his message and his ministry was from heaven and not from men, they would be legitimizing then what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus. And so watch this. Instead of consulting the word of God, they're faced with this dilemma about John the Baptist, about Jesus. They're faced with this dilemma. And what do they do? What's their response? It says this. They discuss, huge, huge mistake right here. They discuss amongst themselves. Big problem. Big problem. Are you catching it? Instead of consulting the word. Instead of, hey, let's get out our Bible. Let's study. Let's see. Let's, let's, let's see if what Jesus, if what John's saying is true, if what Jesus is saying is true. Is this what the prophets spoke about? Instead of studying the word, what do they do? They get together and they start thinking for themselves. You're going to find out here in just a little bit. That's a big problem. 
And it's still a big problem to this day. When we're faced with any question, we're faced with the dilemma. If we get together and, and we start brainstorming ideas amongst ourselves about the right way to go or the right decision to make, we're going to find ourselves in a lot of trouble, just like the Pharisees did. So instead of consulting the word, they discuss, amongst them, they discuss this among themselves. And, and, and here's what you got to understand. Here's what scholars will say, that it's specifically in the gospel of Luke, that when Luke says the Pharisees would begin to discuss amongst themselves this problem or this question, what he's actually doing is showing that those who discuss amongst themselves are actually opposed to the redemptive purposes of God that are at work in Jesus. Luke is purposely pointing out over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Luke that when the Pharisees discuss amongst themselves, they're actually opposed to the work of God in Christ. It's revealing their hearts. And so transparent in their response to Jesus is a system of values that they are serving. In this case, their answer to the question that Jesus poses, or their non-answer, if you will, it serves nothing more than pandering. It's an attempt to manipulate continued favor and elevated status within Israel. They're trying to keep their power. And so they, they pander. Well, we, we, you know, we don't know. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of what the people are going to say. They're more concerned with the approval of men than they are with the approval of God. And so they don't answer. But, but, but not answering, here's what you gotta, you got to understand. Not answering is always an answer because there is no middle ground with Jesus. There is no neutral with Jesus. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. There is no neutral ground. And so to not answer or to not decide, to be in neutral, is to rebel against God. It's to reject Jesus. And so Jesus understands because the discussion's over basically at this point. Here's what Jesus understands. And we got, we got to catch this too. Jesus understands that discussion with such biased and hostile people was worthless. And so he didn't continue to comment. He didn't get into an argument. Because discussion with biased and hostile people is worthless. But then Jesus does answer their question with a story, with a parable. And remember from our study of Luke, parables read us, right? It's not just about what's happening in Jesus' day and in Jesus' time and the audiences that are listening to Jesus. Jesus tells these parables and, and they read us, they read our hearts, and we always find ourselves somewhere in these stories, somewhere in these parables. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Jesus answers their question kind of indirectly with this parable. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. Verse 10. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. 
And so the owner sent another sermon, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. Verse 12, a third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do, the owner asked. I know, I'll send my cherished son. Some translations say my beloved son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmer saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and they murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked, I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen that his listeners protested. And Jesus looked at them and said, then what does the scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Here's what's incredible about this parable is it, it tells, here, here's what Jesus does in this story. He tells the story of the entire scripture, like Beginning to end, and you may have missed it, so, so we're going to break it down here in just a second. But Jesus tells the story of the scripture in this one short little story from Genesis to Revelation. That this story is the meta narrative from God's point of view. You know what the meta narrative means? It's the, the overarching story of the scripture, that's the, the meta narrative. You've got all these individual narratives and stories and situations. It, the meta-narrative is the story of the scripture. It's the story of God. It's the story that God is telling through his word. And in this short little parable, we get the entire Bible front to back from God's point of view. So let's break this down. First of all, we've got the owner. We've got the man who plants this vineyard. That's God. This is God the Father. We've got the vineyard, the, the, the owner that God plants. We've got this vineyard. It represents the nation of Israel. But more specifically, it's the, the people of God who have been entrusted with the word of God, the worship of God, the, the truth of God. Then you've got these tenant farmers. Now, specifically, this is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these religious leaders, the spiritual leadership over the nation of Israel. They are the tenant farmers. Then you've got these servants that, that go and confront the tenant farmers. And these servants are servants of God throughout the Old Testament that were leading the people of God away from idolatry and to the worship of the one true God. So you've got people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You've got Moses. You've got Joshua. You've got David. You've got the prophets specifically. These are the servants that the father is sending to these tenant farmers, to the religious leaders to warn them. But the tenant farmers beat the servants. And 
When you read it in light of its historical context, this repeated beating, insulting, and turning away of the servants is a direct challenge on the part of the tenants about who owns the vineyard. So in turning away these servants, in rejecting these servants, and beating these servants, the tenant farmers are saying, and we get this by way of repetition, this is what you, you, you get kind of as you dive in and you learn that this is what Luke is revealing to us, that in its historical context, here, here's what the tenant farmers are saying. They're saying, this is our vineyard. By beating and insulting and turning away these servants, these tenant farmers are saying, this vineyard belongs to us. And so what does the owner do? Well, surely if I send my cherished son, my beloved son, they will listen to him. This reveals the links that God is going to so that his people might repent of their sin and turn back to him. I'll send my son. Sounds a lot like John 3.16, doesn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his what? His one and only son, his cherished son, his beloved son, that whoever would believe in him, listen to him and believe in him, they would not perish, but they would have everlasting life. So the owner sends his cherished son. And what do the farmers do? They beat and kill the son. And Jesus said, what will that owner do? He will come and kill those wicked, evil farmers, those tenant farmers. God says he will come and kill them. It was a prophecy that we looked at several weeks ago on Palm Sunday. Jesus is repeating again that in 70 AD, Rome would come in and totally wipe out Jerusalem, wipe out and destroy the temple. The owner of the vineyard came and killed the farmers. And that happened in 70 AD. Jesus says, these evil, wicked farmers will be judged. And it happened in 70 AD. AD. And then it says this, Jesus says, they'll kill the farmers and then he'll lease the vineyard to others. Who, who, who are these others? Well, these others to, to Luke's readers and in his day would be understand as the Gentiles, which as they would place their faith in Jesus would become the New Testament church. That's us. Unless you are a Jew by heritage, You're a Gentile. And Jesus says in this story, in this parable, that the vineyard will be taken away from these evil, wicked farmers and it will be given, it will be leased to others. That's the new covenant church. That's the New Testament church that launches in the book of Acts after the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And then Jesus explains the heart of the parable by quoting from Psalm chapter 118 when he says this, the stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. Did, did you know this passage from Psalm 118 is quoted about eight times in the New Testament? 
This was very important to Jesus' disciples and to the New Testament church, that, that Jesus was the stone that the builders, these tenant farmers, rejected, but he became the cornerstone. And a cornerstone in the building of a home or in the building of a building determines the position of the two walls that go from it. It determines the shape of the whole building. That stone doesn't move. You build around that stone, you build on that stone and not the other way around. That's what you do with the cornerstone. And Jesus says from Psalm 118, the stone, that's me, that the builders rejected, these tenant farmers rejected, has become the cornerstone of it all. And then Jesus says this about that stone. If you reject that stone, if you trip over that stone, if you toy with that stone, that stone, just like that 4,000 pound stone out front, if you mess around with that stone, you're going to get crushed. Jesus says that stone, you trip over that stone, you reject that stone. You try to play middle ground, stay in neutral kind of with that stone. Jesus says that stone will crush you. It will break you in to pieces. This is a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus, when that stone from Daniel 7, if you're here from our Daniel study, you might remember that stone that comes from heaven, it comes from the, the clouds, and it dashes the nations to pieces. Jesus says one day, the cornerstone is going to return. And if you've toyed with or rejected or just tried to remain in neutral with that stone, that stone will fall on you and crush you to pieces. You see, here's what you got to understand this morning. You are either a tenant farmer or the wicked farmer. You're either a tenant farmer or a wicked farmer. There's no in-between, there's no other option, you're one or the other. You're a tenant farmer or you're a wicked farmer. And, and, and how, how can you tell? Well, you know you're not a tenant farmer and you know that you are a wicked farmer with at least two things that we kind of find in these passages this morning. Two reasons, number one, how, how can you tell if you're the wicked farmer and not the tenant farmer? Here, here's the first one, you think you're the owner. Like, you think you're in charge. You think you're in charge of your life. If you think that you're the owner and you act like you're the owner and you act like you're in charge of your own life and your own world, you are the wicked farmer. You've bought into this pride, this delusion where you actually think you are in charge of your life. You're the wicked farmer. Jesus says there's only two sources of authority. It's either human authority or divine authority. Authority from man or authority from heaven. And if you're 
living your truth. You've got your own opinions. You're, you're making your claims and your arguments. The, the only question is, based on whose authority are you speaking or are you living? Yours? You don't have any authority to make those claims or to live your truth. You don't have that kind of authority. Only wicked, deluded farmers think they've got that kind of authority to live their truth and have their opinions and make their claims and their arguments and discuss amongst themselves. Only a wicked, evil farmer would believe that or, or, or live like that. These tenants in this parable are clearly relying on the fact that the owner is so far away that they can do as they please and they won't be held accountable. And so they begin to think that this vineyard belongs to us and we can do whatever we want with it. That's the delusion of sin. That's the blinding nature of sin where you begin to live and act like because there's no accountability maybe immediately for that choice or that decision that you make because God's so far away and maybe he doesn't really see what I'm doing or what I'm, what I'm thinking and he's so far away, he's not gonna really do anything about my choices and about the way I, I'm choosing to live my life. He's so far away, it's, it's, it must be up to me. I must have the authority to make those decisions. And that's the way these wicked farmers begin to believe. And then they decide this is the delusion of sin. This is the delusion of thinking that you're in charge, that you're in control. Here's the delusion. They actually think if we kill the owner's son, we can inherit the land. The vineyard will be ours. How deluded. That's what sin does. It blinds you to the truth. It deludes you into thinking that you're in charge and it deludes you into thinking that God will never bring your sin to account. That's the delusion of sin. It's the delusion of pride. It's the delusion of thinking that you're in charge, that you're in control. And so instead of repenting and falling on their knees before the son when he arrives, they conspire amongst themselves to get rid of him. And we do the same thing with Jesus today. We start playing games with Jesus and inventing a, a, a new Jesus that always agrees with me and, and, and that is for anything and everything that makes me happy. We get passionate about one part of Jesus, but, but not really the other parts of Jesus. We, we love one part of Jesus, but we don't really submit to the other parts of Jesus. It's why we study the scripture verse by verse so we get the full counsel of Jesus. And so that we're forced to confront the sides of Jesus and the parts of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that may not sit right with us. We feign faith by acknowledging Jesus as a good teacher, but we haven't really submitted our lives to him. These are all the ways that we feign faith in Christ. We feign submission to Christ, but we're actually living as if we're the owner, as if we're in charge. So that, that's, that's the, the first way you can tell if you're the wicked farmer. The, the second way that you can tell if you're the wicked farmer is that you please people. You, you, you serve and live for the approval 
of men and women. You're, you're living to please people. You see, in their challenge to Jesus about his authority and in response to Jesus' story, both times, did you catch this? Their response to Jesus is based on what other people are going to think. Well, if we say this about John, then the people are gonna get upset and they might even stone us because they believe John's a prophet. Jesus tells his story and again, they get together and they're conspiring amongst themselves and they're afraid to speak up because everybody is loving Jesus. They're, they're so afraid of what the people are going to do. These religious leaders are more afraid of men than they are of God. They care more about approval of man than the truth of God. And, and so we, we do the same thing today where we get these pet issues and we start to make God look out of touch. Like we're, we're further along because we don't wanna offend anybody. We, we've progressed beyond the word of God. And so in order to not offend someone and because to, we, we, we want their approval, we take that pet issue and we say, you know, man, here, God's really out of touch or his word's really out of touch here. And we don't wanna offend anybody. We're, we're more concerned with the approval of men than we are with the approval of God. Paul said this in Galatians, if I were looking for the approval of man, I could not be a servant of God. You cannot serve God and the approval of men and women. And today, one of the primary ways we, we're, we're seeing this happen is that we're getting the first and second great commandments from Jesus out of order. I've even heard it said, Jesus' greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. No, it wasn't. That's not the first commandment. What did Jesus say the first and greatest commandment was? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second, is equally important, but it's the second. And that's I love my neighbor as myself. Loving my neighbor is not the first and greatest commandment. Loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength is the first commandment. I can't, watch this, I can't love my neighbor rightly if I'm not loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength first. I'm gonna love my neighbor wrongly and poorly and short-sightedly if I'm not first loving the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so what we're tempted to do today because we want the approval of man, we want the approval of our culture, we want the approval of our society, what we're tempted to do is, is switch those and say, man, the greatest commandment, the greatest love is loving your neighbor as yourself. And do you see how just even that little short, just deception can get everything out of whack. It gets everything out of line. Because then I start to view my theology and I begin to view the word of God through the lens of what's going to make my neighbor happy or how as Am I gonna win the approval of my neighbor? That, that begins to be our primary concern rather than it being secondary to my love for God. Listen, if you're not loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, that, that first and greatest commitment, if you're not doing that first, you're not loving your neighbor. 
in the way God is calling you to love your neighbor. And you're gonna be tempted to win their approval instead of the approval of God. You're gonna try to please your neighbor before you try to please God. And that's gonna get you in trouble and it's gonna get them in trouble. So here's my challenge for you today is to confess this, the author is my authority. The author is my authority. You see, a tenant farmer knows he's a tenant and not the owner. He knows, he understands his role. I'm a steward of what the Lord has given me. I'm a tenant, I'm not the owner. And so a tenant says, my heart is deceitful, I can't trust it. A, a tenant farmer says, my mind is foolish, like Paul said in Romans 1. And I think up foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like. And so a tenant farmer says, my heart's deceitful, I can't trust it. My mind is foolish, so I can't trust that. So what do I do? I'm gonna lean not on my own understanding and in all my ways, I'm gonna acknowledge him. I'm gonna trust God, I'm gonna trust his word. Did you notice how Jesus answers these questions to the Pharisees, Each, both, both times about his authority? What does he do? Where, where, who, by what authority? Where, where's this authority come from? He answers these questions about his authority by working backwards. He goes to John the Baptist. What about his authority? In the parable, he goes to the prophets. What about their authority? And by doing so, by referring to John the Baptist, by referring to the, the prophets that came before John the Baptist, these servants that the owner was sending to the tenant farmers, by referring to John the Baptist, by referring to these prophets, here's what he's saying. John the Baptist spoke the word of God. Those prophets spoke from God. They spoke the word of God. So Jesus bases his authority as a continuation of the authority and the word that, spoke, that God spoke through John the Baptist and through those prophets. Here, here's, let, me, let me just put it very, very practically. Here's what Jesus is saying. John the Baptist spoke the word of God. The prophets, they spoke from God. That was the word of God. So Jesus, once again, he's done this over and over and over again throughout the gospel of Luke. He's giving authority to the word of the Lord spoken all through the Old Testament. He's saying that's the word of God. And my authority in a much greater way is the continuation. I'm the God, I'm God in the flesh, I'm the son of God. My authority, my words are a continuation of the word of God and the authority of God that's been laid out through the prophets, through John the Baptist, now in me. And then remember, we confess this all the time. What would Jesus say to the apostles about the writing of the word of God after Jesus? He would tell the, the, he would tell the apostles, I'm gonna give you my spirit. My spirit's gonna remind you of everything that I've spoken, everything that I've said. And then he said this, you will always have my words. My words will never pass away. What's the, what, what's the point? Jesus is saying the author of the scripture, that's me. The prophet spoke from God. That's the word of God. John the Baptist spoke from God. I'm speaking from God. My apostles, they're going to speak from God. They're going to write the words of the, of the New Testament. So the tenant farmer says, God, you have spoken. You have revealed yourself. You're in charge, I'm not in charge. So the author of the scripture, who is Jesus, he's my authority. That's what the tenant farmer says. The wicked farmer says, I'm in charge, I run the show. The tenant farmer says, I'm not in charge. 
I don't run any show. Jesus, you're in charge. You run the show. You are Lord. I'm not. And so I'm believing your word and I'm submitting to you. I'm not getting together with my friends to discuss it amongst ourselves. No, no, no. I'm submitting to the son who is here right now in this moment through his word, speaking his word, his ways and his will. You see, the multitudes in this story, they know the answer to the question about John the Baptist. John came from God. God's presence clearly manifested itself in his ministry. And so here's what they understand, that rejection of that conclusion that John spoke from God and therefore Jesus is speaking from God. The rejection of that conclusion only reflects spiritual blindness. And the same is true about Jesus and his word. To reject Jesus, to reject his word reveals spiritual blindness, a delusion, a pride that says, I'm in charge. That's the wicked, the wicked farmer. Jesus said, you will always have my words. My words will never pass away. So I'm challenging you today to say the author is my authority. Why? Number one, because that's ultimate reality. Jesus is in charge. He is Lord. God has made the scripture says Jesus, Lord and Christ. That is ultimate reality. That is the truth that every other truth submits to. That's ultimate reality. He is Lord. But then secondly, the reason why I challenge you to make the author your authority, second reason is because he's good. The author is good and he's worthy. Do you see the heart of God in this parable? The, the patience of the owner, the patience of God, the long suffering, he's slow to anger, he's sending prophet after prophet, miracle after miracle, sending his son so that his people would turn to him and be saved. The, the crowd's actually expressing horror at the whole course of these events in this parable because the owner is so patient and kind and merciful and the farmers are the ones that appear to be unreasonable and to have acted outrageously. Jesus here is depicting a nation that has been obstinate and a God who is compassionate in the face of unreasonable rebellion. And instead of punishing these farmers who've rejected the prophets, he gives them further opportunities and more grace and more grace by sending servant after servant. In real life, the owner would surely have taken strong action long ago. He had the law on his side. He would have developed severely with these offenders. But Jesus is depicting, you gotta see this, a God who loves beyond measure and is compassionate when he has every right to be severe. This is grace and truth on display. Grace and mercy. And at the exact same time, truth. That Jesus is the word, that he is the truth, that he is the owner. And so the owner finally sends his beloved son, emphasizing that the links to which the owner is willing to go and to leave open the possibility that his tenants will be faithful. This is the story of the relationship between Israel and God. God's wooing Israel and disciplining Israel so that they might turn back to a love relationship with him. And it's the story of God and you and his wooing you and disciplining you to get your attention, to draw you to 
himself. And so the second reason I tell you to make the author your authority is that he's good and he's worthy. God's drawing you to himself for his glory and for your good. It's this relationship that is your best. And so God is gonna do everything it takes to get your attention, that you would come to your senses and make the author your authority. Would you pray with me? God, I pray this morning that you would give us a spirit of humility that says, I'm the tenant. I'm, I'm not the owner. I'm not in charge around here. You are. And so you would give us, God, both believer and unbeliever alike, give us a humility in our hearts right now that says, God, you're in charge. That's ultimate reality. But I'm submitting to you, not only that is it because it's ultimate reality, but because you are good and you are worthy of my life, of my faith, of my worship. And so just right where you're at, would you just heads bowed, eyes closed, just kind of a moment between you and the Lord. What you've got to understand is that one day you're going to stand before God or Jesus is going to return. And Jesus, according to this parable, is either going to be your savior or your worst nightmare. Because to reject the cornerstone means that the stone falls and crushes you. He's either gonna be your savior, he's gonna be your worst nightmare. And so this morning, if you've never submitted your life to Jesus, you've never given your life to Jesus, today is your day, now is your time to give your life to Jesus. You can't do better and try harder your way into the kingdom of God, that's not how it works. You've gotta humble yourself, give your life to Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven. You can be made right with God. You can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. And if that's you, I want you to grab that connection card that's in the seat in front of you. There's a pin there, fill out that card, check that box that says you're committing your life to Christ. After the service is over, you can drop it off at our welcome center. You can put it in a giving box. We just wanna follow up with you on that decision. So God, I pray that right now you'd be drawing people by your spirit to yourself to believe the gospel, to believe the great news that God is patient and kind and long-suffering. And because of his love, he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to pay the fine for our sin and rebellion. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering our sin and death. And so God, would you give people today the faith to believe that great news? And today, would you, by your spirit, give your people a spirit of humility that says, I'm not discussing anything amongst myself and with my friends. I'm not gonna lean on my own understanding. In all my ways, I'm gonna acknowledge you. You're my authority. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as our team leads us in worship?